Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are in the midst of our run of 1984. We've got all kinds of good 1984 things going on right now. And here's an interesting fact, everybody. 1984 had five number one albums, only five. This is the shortest list of number one albums in music history. And they are all iconic. They are iconic. I can't wait to discuss. We've got two albums from 1984 that we're going to compare. Two favorites. Yeah. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about two movies from 1984 that are favorites. Followed by two more movies. With great albums. With great albums. I mean, and that's it. Okay, so let's talk. So 1984, we've already covered it. Thriller, right? Thriller has the number one record for two years in a row, which is the only album to ever have done that. So 1983, in February, it becomes number one. It is number one until April of 1984, when what album takes over? Footloose. There you go. So Footloose takes over in April and stays there until the end of June, where June 30th, Huey Lewis and the News Sports hits the number one spot. That is awesome. Awesome. How long do they keep that title? For exactly one week. (laughs) And then, who takes over? Born in the USA, right? Born Bruce Springsteen. Right. So, which the album that we're comparing today, those two guys, middle of the year, and Bruce holds it for a good four weeks. He's got all, all of July, and then, last guy to take over for the rest of the year, it's a pretty easy guess. It's Princess Purple Rain. Exactly. So, teaser for a few weeks from now, we will have... Footloose, the movie, and Purple Rain, the movie, and Footloose, the album, and Purple Rain, the album, that we're going to compare all of those things together. Super excited for that, and we will have hit every single of the five number one albums of 1984. Man, it's going to be amazing. I can't wait. 1984, best year for music in the 80s? I think it's time to go back in time. Okay. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. I'm sorry, fellas. You're just too darn loud. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, fantastic. Okay, so we had a fantastic experience that Jason probably doesn't think is fantastic as I do. He had a flat tire today just before we started recording. Now, Jason has come and saved me before when I ran out of gas. (laughs) Yes, I'm a 45-year-old man who did not fill up the tire. I got so many practices going on, I didn't have time to stop for gas. And so he came while I was stranded on the side of the road and filled me up with gas. I got to repay that favor today by picking him up when he got his flat tire. His was a little nicer for him because he made it to the tire fixing place. But we rode to the recording studio today listening to sports. And we put the top down. Yep. We turned it up. Yep. And we're blowing out. I want a new drug. <laughs> It was awesome. Yeah, it really, really was. We're back to being 11, except we can drive. Yeah. So I've got to say, I'm so excited to talk about Huey Lewis and the news. This is the best album that I went back to in our entire history of doing everything so far. Wow. Okay. This was a huge album for me back in the early mid 80s but one that I kind of lost touch with over the years. I mean, there are some songs that, you know, you're going to continue to hear on the radio no matter what, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't have told you three weeks ago that bad is bad was a song by Huey Lewis and the news. But when it came on, I knew every single word and I was, it was the definition of nostalgia. I was taken back to that moment in time where I'm listening to my cassette tape of sports and loving every single song. on This is one of those unique albums where it's hard to find somebody who doesn't like this album. Yeah. Like this appeals to my dad. Yeah. 
and it appeals to my son. People can listen to this, just turn it on and enjoy it. It's just everything is like a toe tapper, feeling good, top down, turn it up song. I've talked to you about my brother before. He's the one that said, we got to go watch Back to the Future. He's the one that said, we got to go watch Die Hard. He was huge influence in my life. And it was because of him that I heard Huey Lewis sports. Like he was the one that had the tape. And so whenever we started talking about comparing these two albums, I texted him, I let him know. And he's like, call me. <laughs> and so I called him and he told me about how at that time he was going into college. He went to college in 86. And so at that time he would try to tell people, you know, Hey, what they meeting people for the first time, who's your favorite band. He would start, he would say Huey Lewis in the news. But at that point he almost felt like he had to apologize for it because it was like, people were like, Oh, popular music, whatever. Right. And he he kind of got to where he just automatically said, well, you know, I know it's pop, but I really do like Huey Lewis in the news. And so we started talking about that album together back and forth. And he texted me a little while later. He said, I'm listening to it right now. I am no longer hiding the fact that I am an avid Huey Lewis fan. <laughs> I am free. I <laughs> Liberated. I am liberated. I can wear my Huey Lewis badge with pride. So I told him. Sometimes there are folks out there who stick their nose up at popular music and we just kind of give those people the finger. That's right. We yeah. celebrate it. Yeah. It's popular and that's okay. It's popular because it's good. That's right. right. That's we're right. Not, we're not fooled here. We're, it, it's popular because it's good. So come enjoy this album with us. But first, let's talk about the history. Let's go back in time. Before we get going, I just want to point something out. We have been talking to each other now for couple of years face to face and one of the reasons that I can do that is because you don't have nose hair <laughs> have you been talking to people and like you can't even concentrate on what they're saying because of their nose hair absolutely they like talk to you they like dangle <laughs> it dangles yes it wiggles it's it's a total distraction absolutely and so let me let me say if you are one of those guys we have a product that is supporting the podcast that you need to check out it's called the weed whacker and it is from manscaped it is an amazing product. It trims your nose hair. It's not embarrassing. You just stick it up there. It takes care of it. You're not going to look at people and bother them. Right. And I'm one of those guys who's self-conscious about my nose hair. So somebody that you're going to see me and I'm going to be like yanking them out and wincing in pain. <laughs> Don't do that. There is a special thing that they make. And they've also just released, in addition to the Weed Whacker, they have just released something called the lawnmower. If you have other areas of your body that you're looking to trim up. And I'd like to point out that a giraffe is easier to see in the plane than it is in the forest. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Yes, yes, it is. So and it's very it's very good around sensitive areas, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, they have also an entire shave kit called the Ultra Smooth Package. Package. <laughs> <laughs> you get the idea. So who it, doesn't want their package ultra smooth? Right, right. So don't forget to go to manscaped.com and use the promo code FANSIDED20 to get 20% off your order and free shipping. Whack it. <laughs> Perfect. So, we talked about Bruce Springsteen last episode, right? Bruce... Born September of 49 at Monmouth Medical Center in Long Branch, New Jersey. Just a little over nine months later, Huey Lewis is born 50 miles away. Okay. Isn't that crazy? Like they're so close in age, born just, you know, a stone's throw away from each other. That's He's born crazy. at the French Hospital in Manhattan. You, Long Branch in Manhattan, worlds apart, 
economically, but it's just interesting that these guys were so close together. But Huey did not stay there very long. His mom had escaped from Poland during the war, right? Mm -hmm. This is 1950, right? The war has been over for five years. Just a little while after he was born, her parents had come to kind of join them and they were pretty well-to-do, were company owners. And then really in a bizarre thing, they both commit suicide and it's just devastating to his mom. And she's like, I just can't, I can't live here anymore. And so they move all the way across the country to California where Huey Lewis grows up. Wow. I had not heard that. That's interesting. Yeah. So he, his dad is a radiologist by trade, but a drummer by heart, right? Yeah, he, right? He loves music, loves jazz. When Huey Lewis is a kid, he teaches him how to play the drums. Oh, by the way, Huey Lewis, not his given name. Right. His given name, his birth name is Hugh Anthony Craig III. Right. So Dr. Craig taught young Huey how to play swing drums because if you've got time, You've got the foundation of music. <laughs> so he's a really bright kid. He skips second grade. Yeah. His mom, they're out like near Berkeley and stuff. She really gets into the hippie scene. Like they're in the Bay She's area. She's a hippie. Yeah. She goes full-blown hippie. She ends up having an affair with this beat generation poet named Lou Welch, who also has a weird, like he yeah. is believed to have committed suicide, but just like left a note and then nobody's ever seen him since then. It's But Huey credits him as inspired his early teenage years and I think probably has a lot to do with his songwriting and musical tastes. Huey's first albums are Gary U.S. Bonds and <laughs> Bobby Waddell. Okay. And then he gets to go to a concert of Paul Butterfield at the town hall and the only seats left are the seats on the stage. Uh-huh. I, I don't know how that happens. Like, I mean, Do they do that anymore? I, I don't think so. Right? <laughs> um, so he gets to sit on stage and watch this concert and he's like, this is what I want to do. Right. This is incredible. So she has the affair. The parents get divorced. He's about 13 at this time. It's a tough experience for him. The judge asks him who, what he wants to do. He doesn't want to pick between them. And his dad proposes, hey, why don't you go to this prep school? Right. And so he ends up at this, pre- he, he gives, his dad gives him a brochure for the prep school where it's like this <laughs> beautiful campus and this guy walking with this, you know, kind of buffy hot sorority girl looking girl. Susie like, Hot Pants, right? Yeah. And he's like, oh, that sounds good. And then he goes over there and it's an all boys school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, that's a bait switch if I ever heard it. I heard him talking about it. He said, think dead poet society. So he comes in and he wants to set himself apart. So he becomes the guy who learns how to play the harmonica, right? right. And he becomes an R&B snob. He said he wouldn't listen to anything contemporary at the time. He was only listening to old R&B, blues, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's who he was growing up. He ends up graduating because he skipped a grade. He ends up graduating at age 16. Now he's no slouch. He scored a perfect 800 on the math portion of the SAT. I know. know. In addition to that, he's also like a world-class pitcher. He's a very good baseball player. Yeah. So he's got this plan. He's going to go to Cornell. He's all state. So he's going to play ball over there. And his dad says, you're your own guy. I've let you run your own life do this one last thing for me. Go to Europe and bum around for a year. He didn't really want to do it, which is just the the absolute reverse, right? Right, right. No, don't go directly to college. (laughs) 
you're a year young, go out there and bum around Europe. I want to make one comment. Yeah. When you were talking about his perfect math score and his baseball ability, I've heard him talk about this, right? He very much undersells his talent. Uh So he's like, yeah, you know, I kind of got lucky on the math portion. And David Letterman's like, you don't get lucky in (laughs) math, right? You don't get lucky. Yeah. And then the the guy was interviewing me and said, now you were going to play baseball. Like you were a good player. And he's like, ah, you know, I thought I wanted to be a baseball player, but then I turned eight. Oh, but yeah, he was gifted as a, as an athlete, played baseball and basketball in, in high school. Yeah. And then did this amazing feat in math and said, nah, I just got like, yeah. And so he's excited to go to college and his dad says, yeah, go be a hippie hitchhiking bum. So he hitchhikes just to get over to New York, right? He's in California. He hitchhikes <laughs> just to get over to New York where he's going to try to fly, although he's only got about 300 bucks on him. And so what he does is he's talking to people about how to sneak on to like a cargo plane. And so he ends up driving out to the cargo thing. He can't figure out how to get on. So he ends up back in the regular you know, passenger flights. He befriends somebody at the ticket counter. And he's like, I've heard the secret about a silver pin. And the guy's like, well, wait until I get a fork in an hour and I'll tell you what to do. And he's like, okay. Yeah. And so sure enough, like it's, <laughs> these are the days of very lax security wow. on planes. And basically you could buy a ticket for anywhere. You just, and then take a silver pen, you write Europe or whatever <laughs> it is on your ticket. And all they do is see your ticket and send you on your way. Wow. They don't really examine what it is. And so he ends up basically scamming a, pl- a flight out there. They hand him a pack of cigarettes as he gets on the plane. That's how long ago this was. <laughs> Here's a pack of four cigarettes for the flight. See you. Enjoy. Enjoy. Hey, right? smoke up, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> So he ends up in Europe and hitchhikes again down from from London down to North Africa. And then he says, I wanted to leave North Africa, but I was so stoned I couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) He needed a new drug. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But you know, when you talk about North Africa, he said he played in the the town square in Marrakesh. Yeah. So he's out there with like snake charmers and like fortune tellers. Uh And he's got a harmonica and a hat. Yeah. And he said... So he would play. He said he earned, you know, three or four Durham, I think is their currency. Uh-huh, yeah. He said it cost one Durham to stay in the youth hostel uh-huh. and half a Durham to eat. Uh-huh. He was like, what else it. do I need, man? I'm making <laughs> it. it. Made, yes. so, <laughs> so he stays out there busking on the harp for like three months and then eventually gets back to the United States. Busking on the harp. Yeah, busking is playing music for money on the streets and the harp is the, the harmonica. harmonica. There you go. So I got to tell you about this great story that I heard Huey Lewis talking about while he was in Europe. Okay. okay. He's hitchhiking all over Europe and he meets this guy named Michael Jeffries. So he's decided, okay, I'm leaving Marrakesh. Uh, I want to get to Portugal and eventually work my way back to the States. So they're hitchhiking and they get picked up by this Dutch guy who likes to drink a lot. So okay. he's like, the guy's willing to give me a ride. And it, it was a Chevy. And he was like, man, an, an American taking a ride in a Chevy. He's like, I was so thankful. He said, but this guy stopped at every bar along the way. <laughs> So, so by the, like the seventh bar, he's really drunk, right? Uh-huh. And he crashes into this like pond, like oh ramps over a levee and goes into the water. Uh-huh. And so like there's water like up to their he chest. Drove his Chevy to the levee. Drove his Chevy to the levee, <laughs> but it wasn't dry, right? <laughs> okay. So the guy gets out. They push it out or whatever. He says he he squirts a fire extinguisher on the distributor to dry it out. I guess okay. I don't really know. All right. So they continue on. They get to the Portugal border, and Huey realizes, I've lost my passport. 
what had happened was when they hit the water, it floated out of his knapsack. Okay. So his buddy says, sorry, dude, see ya. <laughs> so he leaves him. So he's got to hitchhike back into Seville uh-huh. and he hears rock and roll music playing. Okay. And he's like, well, what am I going to do? I've got no passport. Yeah. I don't speak the language. Yeah. I speak rock and roll. Right. Right. So he goes and he knocks on the door and he's like, Hey, I like rock and roll. You like rock and roll. Let me show you how to play some songs. Uh I've got a harmonica. And he finally tells them, basically, I've lost my passport. Right. And he's like, I need a ride to the embassy. So he, they say, no problem. We'll help you. So they take him to the embassy. Like it's like Friday, like right at closing time. Mm -hmm. He's like, I lost my passport. They're like, do you have 20 bucks? No, I don't. So they slam the door in his face, say, come back on Monday with 20 bucks. And he's like, oh, crap. Uh So he's got to hitchhike back to town. And he tells his friends, he's like, I don't have 20 bucks. I got to have 20 bucks to make a passport. And they're like, no problem. We'll throw you a concert. It's great. Uh So they tell all their friends. They put up all these posters. They say whatever it is in Spanish, you know, Huey and the blues. Okay. So come and listen. He said there's 1,200 people there. It's packed. Uh He said when he gets out there, he's performing. And he said it's like pin drop silent. Uh-huh. And the whole time he's playing his harmonica, he's like, man, we are dying. We are dying here. Uh-huh. And he said, once we finished that first song, the place erupted in applause. Oh, yeah. And he said, this is what I want to do. Ah, uh, that's awesome. That is awesome. There you go. Now we're going back to the States. So he gets his passport, makes it back to the States and starts college. Yes. An engineering major. Well, the prep school that he was at was so good that he was just like, they're doing the same stuff we were doing. I don't really have to go to class. And so he didn't go to class. He started a band called Slippery Elm and he would play. Go take the tests and then go play is what you got to do, right? (laughs) If you can manage it, I guess. And they've got, the band was actually doing pretty well. They, but everybody was saying, hey, you could be a success except for your bass player. He sucks. Right. His bass player was named Bill Benson. Right. And so Huey is kind of the leader of the band. It falls to him to tell Benson he's no longer in the band. And so he, so he's like, hey, buddy, come on. We need to go for a ride. So they get in the car. It's a snowy day. He's driving along. And he says, listen, man, I'm sorry, but you can't be in the band anymore. What he does know is that Bill took some acid <laughs> about, <laughs> about 30 minutes before the car ride. <laughs> And so he turns sheet white and he says, can you pull over? So Huey like pulls over and he starts yakking his guts out (laughs) all over the snow. And Huey's like, this is the worst experience I've ever had in my life. This is important for later on. It is. This sets sets the stage for a later on experience. He did make the comment that when they hired a new bass player, it wasn't any different. It wasn't that dude's fault. Yeah, it was just... They just had somebody... He was the skateboat, right? Right. So after the first year, the second year is a little bit harder, and he has to go to class for the second year, and he figures out, you know what? I don't like this. I don't like engineering, despite the fact that he's a math savant. Right. Um, I just want to play. And so he quits. Quits college. Yeah. He goes back to San Francisco and he meets up with some friends that he had from junior high with this band called Clover. Yeah. Clover. Yeah. He sang a little bit, but he is an R&B guy and he has a gravelly, deeper voice, which is not right for a 70s hair band. Right. One of his junior high friends uh, did have a super smooth voice and his name was Alex Call. Do you know who Alex Call is? No, I do not. I'm going to say seven numbers and you're going to know who he is. Eight six seven five three zero nine. 
Uh, he's Tommy Two-Tone. Well, he's not. He's the guy who wrote the song for Tommy Two-Tone. Okay. Which, by the way, there are all kinds of stories about that song out there and the real girl Jenny and the bathroom wall and all that. And Alex calls, that's all bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I wrote that song in my backyard. <laughs> he said, I had the name. I had the number. I didn't really know what they meant. I just knew that that was a good way that the number sounded good with the name. And that's what I went with. And the guy from Tommy Two-Tone, who's a friend of mine, showed up and he's like, oh, it's got to be a phone number. And that was how the song was born. Okay. Awesome. Huey's other friend was guitarist John McPhee. He would later end up with the Doobie Brothers. Okay. And his third friend, Sean Hopper. Who eventually makes his way to the news. Exactly. They play the club circuit over there. And they're kind of interesting. Like they're a hippie country band, okay. like Clover's first. They had a couple albums before Huey joins up with them. And, and one of them it has a picture of one of them in like overalls with no shirt standing next to this gigantic marijuana plant. <laughs> so they were, they were kind of an interesting mix of music that you can't really define, but they play the clubs over there in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And there's another band that they run into quite frequently. They're both kind of the bands of the Bay Area at the time. And it's a band with a very unfortunate name, Sound Hole. <laughs> uh, sometimes my dog makes a noise from the sound hole. <laughs> um, so a couple of the guys who are members of Sound Hole, saxophonist and guitarist Johnny Cola uh-huh. and bassist Mario Cipollina. Okay. Yeah. So Clover's playing the Bay Area and in 1976, a CBS Records convention is held in San Francisco and the industry's hot shots are all coming in from all over the world. And one of the bands that is playing at the convention is this British band named Dr. Feelgood. Okay. They have a manager who is kind of a, known for being a little bit of a crazy guy. Uh, his name is Jake Riviera and he's with them. And they have a guitarist, Rhodey, who really is just like, they just like him. And so they're like, you know, come with us and you can play guitar when you need to and help us with the equipment. His name is Nick Lowe. He comes up later too. Nick Lowe. Okay. Nick Lowe. So Jake Riviera, Nick Lowe. It turns out that Nick's band was actually fan of Clover. He was in another band called Brinsley Schwartz um, that was like a Clover copy band. They even had a lyric in one of their songs that said, we're going to saddle up right away back to the hills where Clover plays. So oh, nice. it's, it's kind of neat that they are not a well-known band but they've already got like this following of other bands. And so the record label sees Clover and thinks, hey, country rock is the next big thing. <laughs> We're going to fly these guys out to London where they call it pub rock instead of country rock. Okay, uh, We're going to fly them out to London and they are going to be the inspiration for all of the big pub bands to come. So the plane just happens to land in London on the same day that Johnny Rotten spits in the face of an enemy reporter and the punk movement takes flight. Wow. Yeah. What incredibly bad timing. Yes, very bad timing. So they, they are a pub rock, country rock band in the world of punk. Uh -huh. And so they're just getting booed off the stage. Yeah. I heard him talk about this. He said, we thought it was a success if we made it through our set and didn't get booed off. Yeah. Like booze would happen. Yeah. But did we get booed off? No. <laughs> we made it. Good job, guys. Right. They learned to play their songs fast enough, sequentially, <laughs> not leaving any spaces for silence. That was that <sighs> was the key. Okay. So I'm coming up on a story that I think is maybe 
the best pivot head fake fadeaway shot in music history, and I'm excited about it. But okay. I'm just laying the foundation. Okay, it's starting now. Okay. okay, all right. So they're miserable, right? The record label sticks with them, but they're out there doing their best, but really getting booed. The, but the record label says, "Hey, we're still going to." Produce your album, don't worry. Uh-huh. But they stick them with this still wet behind the ears staff producer at Phonogram. You okay. know his name? Mutt Langa. Get out. Yep. Mutt freaking Lang. Mutt Lang before Mutt Lang is Mutt Lang. Like he's he's done a few albums, but nothing of any notoriety, right? This is 76, 77. So he's just a guy. He's a guy who works at the studio. That's it. For those of you who are not familiar with Robert Mutt Lang, he produced Back in Black. Yep. He produced Pyromania. Yep. He produced Hysteria. Yep. He produced Shania Twain and all of her big stuff. <laughs> yep. He, he's a mega producer. That blows me away. Yeah. Huey said that even at that time, 77, he had an incredible work ethic, but no hits in 1978. So two years later, record deal is over. Clover has gone nowhere. They go back to San Francisco and John McPhee says, guys, I'm leaving the band. I've got an offer from the Doobie Brothers and I can't do it anymore. And without him, there is no Clover. Yeah. So Clover dies. Yeah. So this is heartbreak. This is like, we think we've made it and we don't. And we've been doing this 11 years and now the band's breaking up. Huey Lewis wept Yeah. at this. Yeah. So it's 78 Record deal is over. The band is broken up. Huey is stuck in England and he's thinking, here I am, a harmonica player. So he ends up going back to San Francisco and he opens up a health food store. What? Yeah. Natural Foods Express. And he's just thinking about, you know, what is his future going to be? He's 28 years old. He has no money, no band. And he plays the harmonica. What do you do? That sounds like a man who's on the fast track to nowhere. Right. So he thinks, you know what? I'm going to do this a different way. I don't need to be world famous. I can make money as a club band guy. And so he hits up his friends that had been a part of Soundhole. He's got Sean Hopper with him over there to help him out on the keyboards. And he says, we're going to get a job as a club band. He decides they're going to be a club band. And right. they're going to play every week. And that's how they're going to make their living. And it'll be, it'll be great. And they recruit Chris Hayes, who's a guitar player, who says, and I thought at the time, hey, that'd be an extra 150 bucks a month. Yeah, sure. Right. I'll throw in with these guys and make a couple of, you know, a couple extra dollars. Right. So they go to this club called Uncle Charlie's to become the house band, right? And they say, we'll take Monday nights. And they develop their show. They have lots of fun. They do. They put on little dance moves. And eventually it becomes called Monday Night Live. And they've got comedians coming in and doing bits. And they put on a crazy show that everybody loves. And they've got, a, at this time, they've only got about three original songs. And also in their silliness, you know the song, the movie Exodus, the theme from Exodus? Yeah. So they do a disco version of that song, <laughs> right? It's just, it's just plain goofy. And so... Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. We got to hear that. Okay, let's put it on. <laughs> okay, hey. so so you hear that. So the, the, there's a reason that we're listening to that right now, okay? It is because a studio came by, saw them, and said, you guys are awesome. How'd you like a free day at the studio? Yeah. And they're like, heck yeah, this is great. And so they get Pee Wee Ellis from James Brown's band to come in and play horns on Exo Disco. And so then a few months go by, he gets a call from Nick Lowe. Nick Lowe says to him, I just wrote this song, and I think I stole it from you. And he's like, what? 
He's like, yeah, um, I'm pretty sure I stole it. He's like, what's it called? He's like, it's called What Looks Best on You is Me. <laughs> and he's like, man, that was just a joke. You know, that's I told you a joke. That's not you. That's you did not steal that from me. He's like, I really feel like I owe you something. And he's like, you know, I, I just feel like this is kind of your song. He's like, you know what? I tell you what, give me a ticket out to London. I'd love to come see you. We can have some fun. Okay. And so it's like, let me see what I can do. And so he calls him back a little while later. He's like, you're going to play harmonica on some songs over here. So you're going to get to fly over here to London and, and see us. Oh, nice. So he gets to fly over there. He plays on Nick Lowe's album called Labor of Lust, and it's the song's called Born Fighter. And he wrote a song, Huey Lewis wrote a song that he gave to Dave Edmonds, and it's on his album Repeat When Necessary. And Huey Lewis plays the harmonica on that one as well. You know what the name of that song is? I do, because you told me. <laughs> otherwise, I wouldn't have. That song is Bad Is Bad. Yeah, let's listen to the Dave Edmonds version here real quick. Hey, Uncle, man, your son is bad sometimes. Okay, so you can tell it's the same song, but it is a completely That sounds song. blasphemous to my ears. The harmonica is fantastic, but this, it's a definitely it's different. a different style. It's definitely different. a different style. Yes. So they get done recording these two songs. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. The record label comes in. The executives are listening. They're like, guys, oh, it sounds great. I'm really, you know, yeah. nice to meet you, Huey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's kind of this lull and Huey says, hey, you want to hear something funny? And there's like, sure. And he puts in Exodisco. He's got the tape. He puts in Exodisco and lets them listen to it. And they love it. <laughs> they love it. And they're like, uh, we would love to put this on record. Can we do this? And he's like, I uh, I don't know. Let me. Th- and they're, they're like, you think about it. We're going to go put some paperwork together and come back and you tell us what you want to do. Okay. So he leaves. Jake is there still, the manager from Dr. Feelgood. And Jake is like, ask for 13 points and 3,000 pounds up front. He's like, what? Ask for 3,000 pounds up front and do not do it unless they give you the money up front. And he's like, okay. Yeah. The guys come back. He makes the pitch. They said, sure, sounds good. We'll pay for whatever recording studio time you need, uh, but we want you to put some more vocals on it. There's it just, we feel like it needs some more vocals. He says, no problem. Right. So here's where the pivot fake happens. Okay. I'm ready for this. Let's go. I thought the pivot fake was Mutt Lang. We keep going. No. So he goes back to the studio. The engineers at the studio end up erasing 30 seconds of the demo that they had already recorded of Exodisco. They they just mess it up. So he calls the record label and he's like, hey, these guys just erased 30 seconds of this. I got to have more studio time because I got to re-record that part. They say, no problem. We will pay for your studio time. How much do you need? He's like, five days. Okay. And they say, sure, five days, no problem. You've got it. Okay. He re-records Exodisco in four hours and uses the other <laughs> the other four and a half days to record the three original songs that they have, which then he uses as a demo tape that he sends out, which gets him a manager, Bob Brown, coming to see him play yes. and ultimately lands him the record deal. Fade away, shoot, and it's good. He shoots, he scores. Hey, that's brilliant. I love, what a hustle is that? Seriously. Savvy businessman. Oh, I love it. I love it. So, <laughs> so yeah. So he, had, he he sends out. He ends up sending out this demo tape. Bob Brown hears it and is like, "Oh, this is interesting." He yeah. goes to listen to him play. Loves how the band plays. He meets Huey after the show, and he's like, "I love your voice." And Huey Lewis says, "You are the first person who has ever said that to me." 
That's tragic because Huey Lewis has a great voice. Yeah, I, I tried to think earlier. I was like, what do we call this comparison, right? It's the comparison of the not metal, gravelly voiced, have a saxophone in their songs band. I don't know what. what it, passionate the, rasping. Two guys who had number one hits in the middle of 1984. I don't know. It's But it's, it's interesting because they were not the singers that you would expect mid-80s. Right. Right. But one of only two guys, two blue-eyed guys to have hits that year. That's right. The other part of the story is they have this company called Video West out in California who calls them and says, hey, we're shooting things on videotape. It's this new medium. We would love to shoot a video for your songs for free if you'll just let us play it on our videotape station channel. Uh Uh And he's like, Okay. Sounds like a deal to me. So, yeah. So, you get demo tape. You get manager who really fought for him. He's, by the way, he's the guy in the Heart of Rock and Roll video who's playing a crossword puzzle while beating one of the guys at arm wrestling. Yeah, yeah. That's Bob Brown. He's in the I Want a New Drug video. Yeah. When Huey takes the stage, he's like running late. He runs up and the guy pulls the sunglasses off. Yes. Yep. That's right. So, Brown scores them a record deal and they produced their first album, which is just called Huey Lewis in the News. Huey Lewis in the News. Making a brand. Before we dive into their second album, picture this. I did want to mention one thing. They were originally called Huey Lewis and the American Express. Yeah, that's right. And Bob Brown, their manager, is like, hey, guys, eh, the name's okay, but I don't want to get sued. Right. right? So let's sure. let's change it to something. And so they, they come up with this great name, which I think is really cool, Huey Lewis and the News. Um, and that's the one that sticks. Yeah. And if you'll notice... Sports is, you know, sort of TV station related. Right. And yeah. their latest album, Weather, you know, it's kind of a play on the news. I love it. All right. So their second album is called Picture This. Yes. After their first album really didn't do anything. It didn't. No. They needed a hit. Yeah. Right. And keep in mind. They're still figuring out who they are, right? Yeah. This is the time in life in the early 80s when radio is everything, right? Yeah. MTV's new. Yeah. It's up and coming. They haven't huh. quite hit their stride yet. Just a bit before this you've got push button radio for the first time, like where you could pick yeah. your favorite stations, hit a button and the, and the radio would automatically go there, right? You didn't have to use the little dial to try to find it, which was a total pain. Well, what a result of that was is if they didn't enjoy the song they were hearing right then, they're changing the station. Yeah. And so what somebody figured out is, well, then we just need to play the most popular songs. Mm-hmm. We'll pick 40 of them and top 40 is born. Yeah. And so that is really what was the programming method at the time that these guys are starting their rise. If you weren't top 40, you weren't going to be making any money. So they decide, look, this second album, we need a hit. Uh huh. So Huey calls his old buddy, Matt Lang. Yeah. And he says, listen, dude, I got to have a hit, man. Uh-huh. Can you help me with something? Right. And at this time... Mutt Lang has become Mutt Lang. Yeah, I mean, Back in Black was yeah, 1980. Yeah, I was, yeah. was going to say, he's got the, the ACDC albums under his belt at this point. Yes, yeah. yes. 
So Matt Lang says, well, I've got this song that I think is pretty good. And it's called, We Both Believe in Love. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. And so he listens to it. And he's like, yeah, this sounds like a hit. I mean, it sounds good, you know, right? Do you know the lyrics to the to the original? No, version? no, no. Tell me. Okay. So here's Matt Lang's lyrics. Okay. We both believe in love. We both believe it's ours. You really give enough. Yeah, you make me really see the stars. <laughs> <laughs> Winging us a foul. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what, though? He takes it and he says, I think we can work with this. Yeah. That song, We Both Believe in Love, becomes Do You Believe in Love? Yes. That's what they needed, and they had this successful video. Uh-huh. It has a funny scene where he's like serenading his girlfriend while she's asleep in bed, yeah. and all everyone in the news is like in bed singing. You know, yeah, it's so kind of funny. I got a story on the video. Okay, so they they hadn't had a professionally done video before. They get this video director that's supposed to be really well known, really renowned, and he makes this video. And when they walk in and they watch the video, they're like, "This sucks." They've all got way too much makeup on. Oh, it's, yeah. He says the whole time the video is just kind of like mirroring what you have in the lyrics. And he, you know this, like they had it, they had producers produce their records initially, but after a little bit, they're like, hey, we've been doing this long enough. We're going to produce our own record. Right. And after they saw the video, they said, you know what? We can do this. We'll direct our own videos, uh-huh. which again, top 40 MTV modeled what it was playing right off of what sure. the radio was playing. Sure. Right. So that's why you have all of these videos that are horrible because they, these music artists knew music, but they didn't know videos. Right. Huey Lewis is like, we're going to make our own videos. And from now on, if the song zigs, the video zags. We are not going to have the videos related to the songs as much as we can help it. Okay. Okay. And you make an interesting point there. They produced their own albums starting with Picture This. Mm -hmm. They also produced Sports. Yeah. Which is their third album. Yes. Are we ready to dive into that a little bit? Yes. Let's start talking about the production of sports. Okay. So I've got this great story that I want to tell you. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So their their record label is Chrysalis. So they finished the album that eventually they're going to name Sports. Mm-hmm. And they've got the master tape. And Bob Brown, their manager, goes to call the office at Chrysalis. And when he does, he doesn't get an answer. Unusual, right? He gets one of those, uh, this line has been disconnected messages you used Ooh, to get in the 80s. that's a bigger deal. Yeah. It's, it's not, not like nobody system. answered, right? Yeah. <laughs> not like the secretary's not in the bathroom, right? So he calls <laughs> Huey Lewis later and he says, hey, I think we might have a problem. He's like, I called the office and nobody, he goes, I got that disconnected message. Mm. And Huey Lewis says, the one in Los Angeles? And Bob Brown says, the one in Los Angeles, New York, and London. Oh, oh gosh. So they are like, Holy crap, Chrysalis is about to go under. Uh, they are going out of business. They didn't pay their phone bill. Right. How in the world are they going to support a band? Yeah. So what they say is, we can't give them this record. Right, yeah. The Chrysalis guys eventually get a hold of them, and they're like, hey, we're ready to have those recordings. And they're like, um, are you? <laughs> are you sure? Yeah. No, we're, we really, you need, you need to turn in your record. No, we're not going to do it. 
Right. So what was going on at this time is that Chrysalis had basically eliminated its distribution, the part of the company. Chrysalis became just a name and CBS handled everything else. But obviously that Huey Lewis in the news didn't know that was going on. So it took some convincing, right? Yeah. And so Bob Brown's like, look, we, we need money, number one. We need to make a living. Uh-huh. Number two, we have this album that's ready to go. Yeah. And so, so Huey Lewis said he kept the masters for this for sports under his bed <laughs> and like they carried it around because he was too afraid like the house might burn down and stuff yeah. so he carried it around with him he's so scared but he couldn't turn it in he had nowhere to go but he knew the value of what they had because when they started this album we talked about top 40 and we've talked about it before when we've talked about mutt lang and quincy jones yes. right we want to make an album where any one of the songs could be a top single yeah that was their objective with this album a belt high fastball right down Main Street for everyone. Yes, and it, they and they did it. Obviously, they did it. They did it. Oh yes, they didn't. They they just wanted one. They were like, as long as one of these is a top forty hit, we got it. They did not expect six. Right. Right. So this is interesting. So they have an album that's complete. They think it's great. They don't feel comfortable giving it to the record company. Yeah. So it cannot be sold. Right. So they're like, well, what do we do? Well, we go on the road. Got to go on the road. Got to go travel. So they, the tour I think is called the working for a living tour. They are playing the songs on sports out there. Yeah. To crowds. A little bit, a little bit. Well, they've, they've got it reserved. So I I know this, the reason I know this is because my brother told me a story in addition, you know, when we're talking on the phone and our conversations about Huey Lewis, he's like, so when I went to high school, there was a kid who was a year older than me. His name's Denny. If that, you know, hey, Denny, if you're listening out there and you're hey, a re- reporter for the Greenwood, Arkansas high school paper, <laughs> I've heard a story about you. So Denny, for the high school paper, got a press pass. And so on the Working for a Living tour, Huey Lewis was t- matched up with Joan Jett and he was the opening band and she was the main attraction. Yes. Right? This, yes. And so I looked it up and sure enough, Fayetteville, Arkansas, wow. Barnhill Arena, April of 1983. There it is. It lists their set list and everything. And it's mostly picture this songs that they're playing. Okay. But Denny with his press pass goes in and interviews Huey Lewis from <laughs> Huey Lewis in the news. I just, I'm just like, give credit to this guy for realizing, Hey, I'm, you know, 16, but I've got a press pass. So. Hi, my name is Denny. <laughs> And so he said that Huey Lewis was kind of pissed off because he thought that they should be the main band and that Joan Jett should be the opening band. Wow. I mean, that's, that's impressive. And I couldn't, I, I had to think, I'm like, okay, in 82, she's coming off of I Love, I love rock, rock and Roll, which is huge. I Love Rock and Roll is huge. And Crimson and Clover was big. Yeah. And she was in The Runaways. Uh, yeah, but that was like in the 70s. Yeah, but, but Huey Lewis had a couple of songs. I mean, but, you know. I mean, Working for a Living and Do You, Do you Believe, believe in love? love? Sorry, I was like, we both believe in love. <laughs> <laughs> Good for him for having confidence. I don't think he was a jerk about it. I think sure. he just felt like that they... They were special and and probably a pretty good band. I don't know how good Joan, Joan Jett was as a live performance. Right. So say all that to say this is mid-83 and they are all crammed in one bus, but the, the lid's about to come off right. Pandora's box. Yes. So sports, eventually they, they feel confident enough to turn it over to Chrysalis. They produce the album. They, they distribute it. They support it. It's released September 15th of 1983. It goes on to become the number two overall selling album of 1984. It's a smash hit. Yes. 
and like you said, it's one of only five albums in 1984 to reach the number one spot and uh-huh. one of the most competitive music years of all time. So they become obviously world famous within just a short amount of time. Yeah. They have a guy who's their tour manager called Lowell Halsey. And he's got this real Cockney accent. He's, he's like, we go through all these special things, get the band back at the hotel, bring them in through the back door, get them in the back. And then Huey would go down to the bar and have a beer with all the fans. <laughs> <laughs> and chimichurri. <laughs> uh, so, so Huey is not, you know, he's not a guy who's afraid to just hang out. He's such just a regular guy kind of guy. It's so great. That's what his mass appeal is, you know. I don't know if this is the best place to tell the story, but it after sports, kind of in mid-1985, think back to the future time period, uh-huh. right? Michael Jackson had Pepsi commercials, right? And he yeah. was the choice of a new generation, whatever. Right. Yeah. Well, Coke came knocking on Huey Lewis's door. Oh, yeah. And they had this scale that basically combined popularity and how likable you are. Uh-huh. And Huey Lewis basically was the highest you could possibly be on both charts. Oh, wow. And Coke said, basically, we have a, a, a scale that we measure Cokeness. <laughs> and so you're top of the list, Cokeness-wise. And they threw millions of dollars at him, and he said, nah, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so before we jump full on into the album, yes, a couple things that I want to just say that happened after the album, but I want to say them now. Okay. Okay. Yes. Number one, Huey Lewis was one of the artists on We Are the World. I know it's your favorite song, and I know you're excited to talk about <laughs> it. But I've got a little bit of information that I thought was That's okay. priceless. He's one of the solos. He's one of the singing by himself. And you've got all kinds of people there singing. Like the Pointer Sisters didn't have any solos. No. Dan Aykroyd didn't have any solos. Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> How <laughs> in the world did Dan Aykroyd get invited to this party? And so I heard him talking and he's like, they're like, how'd you get the solo in there? And he's like, oh, I got Prince's part. Oh, is that right? Right. So the part that Huey Lewis sings was written for Prince, but Prince didn't come. And it's higher. It's a higher, you listen to it. It's a little higher register for yeah, him. Okay. But he sings right, think about it. He sings right after Michael Jackson sings. Wow. And it's with, it's with uh, Cyndi Lauper. Yep. And yeah, 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 yeah. It's, yeah. it's great, but yeah, he got Prince's part of it. Interesting. Interesting. Any word on why Prince didn't show? Uh, probably because Michael Jackson was Probably because Michael Jackson is Too there. competitive, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I will find out the answer to that. I will find out the answer as to why Prince didn't sing on We Are the World, but you're going to have to wait until our Purple Rain episode to find out. Okay, great. That's awesome. Okay, so 1984 mind you, this is where we are, is when they're filming Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Humongous movie of the 1980s. Right. And so Huey gets a call from this guy named Bob Zemeckis, who really hasn't done much other than a movie called Romancing the Stone at this point. Sure. And he goes, he's like, oh, we would love for you to be a part of this movie. Uh-huh. We think that Marty McFly, our main character, that his favorite band is Huey Lewis and the News. And somehow with his hustle, pivot, fake, fade away, he lands himself a part of the movie. <laughs> this guy's awesome. Yeah. What he says to him at the time, though, is, I don't really want to write a song called Back to the Future. Right. And he's like, I don't want you to write a song called Back to the Future. I want you to write one of your songs, and we're just going to use it. That song is called Power of Love. Yes. And that video was filmed at Uncle Charlie's, which was where he got his start as the stage band. Exactly. And as it turned out, they released that song before the movie came out. And it was topping the charts right when the movie was released. And so when you as a theater goer, imagine this, 
Yes. Marty says, damn, I'm late for school. Uh, uh, and it hits. Yeah. Everybody knew that song. Playing that the number moment. one song in the They're, country. It's perfect. And he did a movie, Huey Lewis did a movie later on with... Gwyneth Paltrow. Yes, which also had a fantastic song on it, but it didn't get released until after the movie, and the movie didn't do so well. And yeah. he said, I think if they'd have released a song before they released the movie, the movie would have done a lot better. And I'll tell you what, we've got a story about another movie that Huey Lewis was involved with yeah. against his will. <laughs> <laughs> and there was money that uh, there were some suits involved, and it was a very unpleasant situation next week. So we're we ready to jump in track by track? We are ready to jump in track by track. Next week. Next week. And that's when you'll hear the story of the mysterious movie that stole Huey Lewis's song as though anybody doesn't know I know, right? (laughs) They totally slimed him on this deal. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 